Who's stopping the government for giving your money back when it comes to your student loans? And can we finally talk about sex on this podcast? Listen to us today. We got good stuff for you on the Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome, friends and family, to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America where we dive deep into the top headlines and the stories that aren't being covered looking to shed some light on the dark forces affecting our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen-Stewart. I'm also the CEO of Brightbeam, a nonprofit network of activists fighting for educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me, as always, this week, my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. I don't know why we always have to say in the South, Ravi. Is there something special about that just because you're such a northerner? I think it gives me a little street cred because it balances out the elite narrative that I spin on this podcast of traveling around the world and surfing. It's to be like, look, I did spend my tour of duty in the Deep South educating children. Good Lord. A tour of duty. For a northerner have to go down south. Oh my God, it was a tour of duty. I had to eat grits. I did, actually. But I'm happy to be back in New York. I was gone for two and a half months. So it's just wonderful to be here in this great city. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's not like you were in the gulag for those two and a half months. You were enjoying yourself in another part of the world as a digital nomad of sorts. And I wish more of our kids in America had the opportunity to do these types of jobs that nobody in high school counsels you that are even possible. And I want to keep saying that on this show because every week we talk about different topics and the only thing I really care about is like what opportunities are our kids getting? And when I look at a life like yours, I want more kids to live a lifestyle like Ravi Gupta. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny about that? I've aged in reverse since leaving my job as a school principal. Somebody commented on the last time I was down in Nashville to be like, there's nothing to make you age rapidly than working in a school. And there's nothing like leaving that work to have the opposite effect. And I'm not doing a really good job selling the work because I still believe it's really important work. But I looked like Abe Lincoln at the end of his presidency <laughs> when I left that job. <laughs> but it's funny you should say kids should be able to do this work that I'm doing because I took a shot at you in Imbroglio this week. I don't know if you saw it. I, I went at you over this uh, attention management stuff. And I was basically making no. the point you just made, which is I want kids to be so good they can't be ignored at whatever their job is. And the key to that is attention management. I started off with the critique that you offered on this podcast uh, of how much time I devote to attention management in my high school design. And then I eviscerated that point that you made in writing. Basically, I'm trying to create like a Jefferson-Hamilton dynamic between the two of us <laughs> where we trade scribes. So over to you. The ball's in your court, Chris. I, I will say this much. I know that I will win that fight because I'm more for the people. I'm more for relaxation and and happiness and all these. You're with this business management, time management, attention management, neoliberal, neocon, oh my God. Uh, hard ass, blah, blah, blah. See, I just got to paint it the other direction and I win. All I have to do is paint you as kind of like the general electric of uh, like personal behavior. I anticipated this critique. Listeners, go to Imbroglio, subscribe. It's free. Take a look at it. Let me know if you agree with me or not. I've gotten some good feedback, Chris. And also, while you're at it, Go to citizen.substack.com and you'll find my weekly newsletter, which is actually damn good, if I must say so myself. Well, take a shot at us. I want you to attack us. This is how you create an audience, is you attack each other. I think we have to attack each other more in writing. I'm a lover, not a fighter, peaceful guy, uh, except for on Twitter. Yeah, that is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, let's talk about this issue about student loans. 
because it's not going to leave us as an issue. It's been an issue at least for several years since Occupy years ago started pushing the public narrative that um, student loans were a massive problem that were crushing people's dreams of achieving the middle class lifestyle and that it was just wrong and it was unfair. A recent article in it's an opinion piece in CNN called Who's Stopping the Government from Giving Americans Relief from Crushing Student Loans is an important read because this is now very timely in that it's reaching the Supreme Court as a case. Uh, and in the case, several Republican governors are actually fighting back against President Biden attempting to erase just some of the debt, the student loan debt. Let's mind you, not all of it. There are 43.5 million borrowers that have federal student loan debt. And as of this year, this month, as a matter of fact, student loan debt is 1.75. And why don't we just go ahead and round it up and call it $1.8 trillion. Uh, the federal loan balance is $1.6 trillion, and it polls very well as an issue. People do believe that there should be some relief for student loan borrowers. And it's hard for me because maybe like a year ago, especially when I was living in libertarian land, I even tweeted about this. So if you're listening to this and you follow me on Twitter, don't pull this up and like throw it against me because views can change on things. And what I tweeted a year ago was that if Biden relieved this debt, it would be the biggest kind of upward giveaway wealth transfer from working people to the college class that there had ever been. And my argument was basically that the majority of people don't go to college. The majority of people don't have college degrees. Most people don't have college loan debt. And there are so many priorities of what we should be doing for working people and the working class that taking a ton of money and giving it to the college educated, the people who are most likely to be able to earn an income, was like a massive wealth transfer. That's what I said just a year ago. That was my opinion about it. May have slightly changed, and you might find that out in this discussion. But Ravi, at the top, you're such a mystery to me on this one. I, When I proposed this to talk about this, I literally said to myself, I have no idea where he'll come down on this one. I actually, you know, I've been covering this a lot at Law's Debate, and I wrote a piece a year ago laying out the case for and against student loan relief, and I think we may release that on Imbroglio later this week just because it's so topical now. And I've covered the legal side of this, which we can get into, and what the Supreme Court's up to. It's almost certain that they're not going to let Biden do this based on what we heard in the oral arguments. But when I laid out the case for and against, I'll just give you the quick hits on this. The case for it is that debt is crippling a generation, the total amount of debt owed in this country has more than doubled since 2008. It's now totaling $1.7 trillion. The amount of households with student debt has tripled from 8% in 1989 to 21% in 2021, while the average quantity of the debt owed by households increased nearly fourfold in real terms between 1989 and 2019. So we have a real problem. Second reason for this is that government created this crisis so they should solve it. They've been acting essentially like predatory lenders. They give out loans indiscriminately. They don't check credit scores. They don't even ask questions about the kind of schools people are going to. And borrowers from for-profit colleges hold on average 40% more debt and are twice as likely to default. And the third reason for this is the vulnerable especially people of color, suffer the most on average. Women owe nearly $3,000 or 10% more debt than men. Black borrowers owe $13,000 or nearly 50% more than white borrowers and are twice as likely to default. So those are the reasons to do this. We have a real crisis. The case against this, number one, this gets to some of the things that you talked about a year ago, 
is that student loan forgiveness is regressive. Less than 20% of the approximately 250 million adults in the U.S. have student loans, so 20% of adults, and most of them are in the top 50% of earners. That's because college graduates are more likely to have high incomes. One thing I wrote is, you know, this was a year ago, I said Biden may not have the authority to do this. Biden himself said something along those lines. Pelosi said it point blank. So I talked about that last year. Uh, I talked about how this would do nothing to solve the underlying cause of the crisis. So it's kind of a one-time forgiveness and doesn't get to any of the drivers of this, whether it's the quality of the programs, et cetera, the incentives involved. We'll come back to that because Obama tried to do something and then pulled back on that. The other piece is we've already canceled significant debt due to the existing moratorium. The Committee for Responsible Federal Budget has estimated that $5,500 per borrower had effectively been canceled already. That was as of a year ago. And another reason is that it's unfair to those who've already paid off their debt. Over 34 million people have already paid off their student loan debt entirely. What do we do for them? And then the last part of this is that we're overselling how helpful this would be to black borrowers. The majority of student loan debt is held by white borrowers. It's just 23% of black Americans older than 24 had a college degree in 20. 19, and I cite like a long Jerusalem Demsis piece, which basically talks about how this could be regressive as well. So those are all my things. In the end, I came down saying I'm somewhere between probably where the old Chris is and where the new Chris is, which I'm excited to see where that is. <laughs> and essentially what I said was if he's going to, I think he should do something, but I think he should have tied this to structural reforms in the system. And I have ideas about what that could look like. And he should do this only as it relates, especially if he's doing this forward looking he should do this only for professions that society needs right now. So I'm not sure we need sociology majors or, you know, turf management is a major at colleges that are getting these these relief, like, you know, like bakery science. I got in trouble for saying that. And it was actual baker from Kansas who came after me on that. But we should be having doctors, nurses, teachers. We should have social workers. We, you know, the kind of jobs that we really need in society right now, we need to start asking hard questions about who gets this relief. And we should also only be giving relief to institutions that the government says do a good job by kids and keep the costs down. And we should use this relief to try to push that structural reform. So in your last point there, we should be asking hard questions. Like if you had to drill down, what do you think is the absolute hardest question, the most hardcore question, like cut through all the noise and cut to the chase? What's the bottom line question that you think serious people should ask about. What degrees and programs actually produce the people our society needs right now? Point blank. Like, we don't even ask that. Obama tried it for a second. He tried to do like a rating system of colleges and they went nuts and they actually bullied into pulling back from that program. That would have been a step in the right direction because right now we don't even have the data. The government itself doesn't even, like he tried to create the, the database and a rating system that would have set Biden up to be able to do something with that information. We need to start from zero at this point and say, all right, let's look at all these institutions that we're giving money to and, and get really, really discerning about how much they charge, whether the tuition is going up or down, what the long-term trajectory of their graduates are, do they get jobs, do they get, you know, because a lot of these programs, especially some of the private uh, universities, are saddling their students with debt. Their students aren't getting jobs. And if I'm the government, I'm saying that's not a good investment, right? The government needs to be looking at this like they're making an investment on the future and saying, all right, well, Binghamton University, where I went, Obama went there and gave a speech because it's a state university that has done a really good job, at least by the time he gave that speech, of keeping costs down and producing people that society needs. 
obviously like podcasters like me, obviously we need more of us. <laughs> uh, but he did that and he, and he was like, look, this is an issue. And that's when he was trying to push for this change. I like that because I think like one problem we as Democrats get into sometimes is we want to just say yes to everything. And I want to mm -hmm. say yes to more here, but we can't just say yes to every degree from every program indiscriminately. That's a recipe for both political and fiscal disaster. But where are you on this? For the record, I'm not a Democrat, just so people know as they're listening, truth and advertising. So it's always interesting to hear the different perspectives. So if you would indulge me, I'll take kind of to tell you, you know that I had some life-changing experiences just intellectually during the pandemic. I had a lot of time to think that I hadn't had before because I was saddled at home. Um, so that's where some of my transition comes on some of these issues. Just as a curiosity factor before we get here, did you like being at home? Because you were with your kids. Like, did you turn into Captain Fantastic? Were you like, you know, bringing your kids out into the woods and teaching them survival skills? Or did you just go crazy? Or some combination of the two? I didn't go crazy. And we didn't go into the woods and do Captain Fantastic. It was somewhere in, in between. I did really relish the time, to be very honest with you, that life slowed down and I just had my family together every day. Like you learn things about your family and you learn things about your partner in a situation like that, that I, I actually liked it. I relished it. And then also intellectually, like, you know, I came out the other end different after spending a lot of time at home, thinking about a lot of things, noticing that the world had changed. It gave me time to slow down and, and challenge myself and some of my beliefs. So when I think about an issue like this, like with the college loan thing, what's different about me in the past and now is I just have different frameworks for understanding what the essential question is. Like what's, so when I just asked you, what's the real hardcore question here that you could ask that helps you cut through all this stuff? Your answer to that is really around how can we make sure that the, the investment is a good one and it produces a result, a return in the form of people that are educated for what society needs. I think I heard you say what society needs. And I also heard you kind of rip on bakers and, and say you're not so sure that we need sociologists, which to me tells me that your question might not be what I would consider to be the right one, if that's the answer that you come up with, that we might not need some of these type of educated people or people educated in these things, specifically because it doesn't have a, a financial return on investment for society. There's so many things in that statement that I think I would take issue with. Like, Can I at least clarify something about that? Clarify it. Go ahead. So I don't think nurses and teachers, I don't justify them in terms of financial investment. I justify them because we need them you know, outside of like any financial, like we need people to save people's lives, to take care of them at old age, to teach children, not because it's going to lead to dollars and cents. So when I say mm, return gotcha. on investment, I'm using a financial term, but I really mean like societally. Now, there's also a, a difference there between things I would like us to have versus like in the world of hard choices where the government takes its limited resources to incentivize people to do those roles. And that's where I'd make a distinction between bakers, podcasters like us, and nurses, mm -hmm. doctors, mm -hmm. et cetera. And I would put sociologists in that too. Like I think there's some sociologists that do incredible work that's really important to society. And then there are some who I think take up space in you know, academic programs and opine about stuff that is not very useful in my opinion. And I'm not sure the government should be stepping in to incentivize that work in a, in a, in a world where they have limited resources and a world where they're taking money out of the hands of somebody potentially who is a plumber who didn't go to college. 
and they're taking their tax dollars and they're incentivizing a sociology major. Like that's where I start to get a little uncomfortable. And I think the politics could also get explosive. All right. Well, here's my little intelligent point. During my time off at home, I discovered a rabbi that I became fascinated with on a very bad day. I was having a very bad day. I don't know how these things happen, but sometimes the universe or God or whatever puts things into my feed and I watch them and there's a light bulb for me that goes off. Rabbi Dania Ruttenberg came into my feed with a video that was about Hesed, Sadaka, and Sedek, which are three Jewish principles of understanding how society should be thought about and how charity should be thought about. And Hesed is really just like the charity that you do out of the goodness of your heart, you give to to people on, and you do a nice thing for people, whatnot, just because you're a good person. Sadaka is the the level of of charity of which you're compelled by the faith to do it. Like 10%, you know, in, in some religions like Catholics and, you know, uh, in, in uh, Judaism, you know, you have a certain percentage. You're, you, that's not optional. You're, ob- you're obliged to do that as a member of the faith. And, you know, the highest level, uh, Siddiq, and I'm sure my pronunciation for people listening, if you're of the faith and you're of the tribe, I get it. The pronunciation's not great. But Siddiq is really at the level where you start asking really qu- questions like, you know, in Hesed, you're like, oh my God, you have a problem, let me give you a piece of cake. And Sadaka is the money that I must give to keep the food shelves and everything open because I've been treated so well by the world and, and whatnot. But Sedek is the level at which you ask big questions like, why is there poverty in the first place? And you really wrestle with the higher order questions about the structure of the society. So when I think about the student loan debt, using this framework that has become such a part of me since I actually like fell down this rabbit hole. The aesthetic question for me in this would be, why does it cost anything to go to college? Why does it cost anything to complete your education and prepare yourself for life in a free society that is the wealthiest ever in the history of mankind that actually lives in it during a time that's considered to be an information age? There's so many different directions we could go when we ask the question, why does it cost anything? Why do we have student loans in the first place? Why do, we, why do the student loans that we have have such crazy, stupid, ridiculous terms? Why is there interest on a government-backed student loan? Why does it take some people years and years and years of paying payments only to pay off thousands, a few thousand dollars of their debt? There's so many structural questions we can ask before we get to the question of, is it fair to make a working-class plumber? who, by the way, doesn't pay very much in taxes anyways, to pay for some, you know, uh, pinhead college-educated person who actually, in the big scheme of things, they're not that far apart from each other in finances, especially in a country where that whole my tax money shouldn't go to pay for, you don't pay taxes anyways. I'm sorry. I mean, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. The majority of the taxes are paid by not a very large part of the the American earning class of people. (laughs) And I get why they would be against it, right? Like the the upper middle class and the wealthier, I get why they would get it because it literally is their money. But then the last thing that I'll add to that too, when I think about an educated country and an educated populace, first of all, free college is something I was against at one point. And now I just don't get why it should cost you anything if we want educated people. I'm also seeing what it means to have really dumb people like to have a cancerous, dumb problem, like to have an outbreak of morons. I'm starting to see the national kind of risk in that. I think if we're going to have anything free in the United States, 
it should be education and as much of it as people want because I'm seeing the moron problem. Anyways, I said a lot there. Is any of it convincing to you? Well, I just want to, I, I want to defend my plumbers for a second here. So the, yeah. in New York City, just for example, the average plumber makes somewhere between 63 and $83,000 according to my very trustworthy Google search that I just did. <laughs> now, if you compare that to the average starting teacher salary in New York, it's about 61 to 83. Now, obviously that's just a starting teacher salary that will go up, but that's still a decent amount of taxes. You're living in New York making $83,000. You're paying a lot of taxes. As somebody who has made $83,000 at one point living in New York City, I could tell you there's a lot of taxes. We're very good at taxing mm -hmm. the shit out of people mm -hmm. in this state. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. yeah, and I imagine your point isn't like they can just shut the hell up. I think what you're trying to say is, and you you revised what you said earlier to say not just university education, but the 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 end point of your training generally. And that, that's why I agree with you. Now, or lifelong learning. Yeah, I love lifelong learning. I think we should be training people continuously. My mom got her bachelor's degree after I did. Like, mm -hmm. So she had an associate's degree in nursing my whole life. And then mm -hmm. after I graduated, I got to attend my mom's own graduation and get to see Chuck mm -hmm. Schumer give the same exact speech she gave at my graduation. Mm -hmm. And then, then she got her master's degree in history. So she was a nurse. She got her bachelor's degree in history. Like once again, a, a degree I would not, my own mother, there's one degree I would have given student loan relief under my current <laughs> framework, which is nursing. Uh, what are you laughing at? Um, Your own mother. What a cold-hearted. But I know. would pay for it myself. And my mom wanted to go to, and my mom went to City University of New York, very affordable. But so she she gets her master's, sorry, her bachelor's in history and her master's in history. And her dream was to become a college professor. Chris, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. these days, mm -hmm. my mother by day is still a nurse in nursing homes. And by night is a professor of history at the very university that she graduated from. I love so it. proud of her. Great woman. So I, I'm with you. I, I don't want to bah humbug this because I do believe basically in the world you're describing, there are certain programs I still would not, like, I just don't think any program should go just like I don't think anybody should receive like ESA dollars, right? Like we were talking about the government should be discerning in some way at the programs it gives money to, whether that's a charter school, whether that's an ESA dollars to a private school or whether that in this case, to me, this is like the equivalent of a voucher discussion for higher education. I'd want them to be discerning in some of the ways I want them to be discerning with ESA dollars, because it's it's kind of the same conversation. I mean, unfortunately, not unfortunately, well, fortunately for you and your point that you're making is that to the extent that there has been some haggling and kind of like more regulation, it has been on the for-profit colleges. It has been on the things that have been seen least likely to produce like a good result. Obama went after it, you know, and I think to some extent, even, you know, Trump went after it a little bit, not a lot. But the majority of people coming out of college, you know, are coming through the main artery of higher ed. And they're coming out of regular schools with a lot of debt, with very bad loan conditions. The conditions are so stupid, right? Like you hear stories about people who've been paying for years and have only like taken a little bit off of the principle of the loan. And that's certainly something policy could fix or change, right? Like if you're going to give away millions of dollars, why saddle people with really subprime kind of like rules about how they pay and what they pay on it or whatnot? Actually, it could be an interest-free loan. You could get an interest-free loan on cars 
and on trucks. I mean, uh, a new Wagoneer from Jeep is like $83 something thousand dollars. A new Cadillac Escalade is like a hundred thousand dollars. What the hell is a Wagoneer? Why is that so expensive? Oh, have you seen these things? My God. They're like, I'm going to look this up because I'm looking for a ch- I might buy a car to lug around some of my surfboards. I don't think you want one of these in New York. Yeah, I don't want, I think you want a Yaris in New York. I think you want no, like a No, I would keep it in Staten Island. <laughs> I would keep it in Staten Island. Oh, look at that. Uh, yeah, they are nice now and they're really expensive and they're not cheap, you know, but you could get a 0% loan on one of these things, you know, seven years, 0%. I don't know why you would be paying so much for a college education above and beyond the regular cost. This is the other thing too. And then I, I am sympathetic to the idea that a lot of people, especially boomers talking crap about this younger generation, the cost of college actually is much bigger today than than it was when a lot of the boomers were. I mean, you know, you hear stories about people having paid $6,000 for their college education, right? And, and an Ivy education at one point who are still walking the earth today talking crap about the younger generation who's paying like $200,000 or more. So anyways, the essential question for me on this one, if I got out of like a year ago when I was deep in my libertarian principled world where I wouldn't give on anything, I know what I would say because the principle just is the government should be, shouldn't be doing this anyways. And I think what's changed to me is I'm asking more humane questions about ascetic questions of like, why does this exist in this way? What is this structure actually doing for us as a society? Are we actually gaining by having millions of people have to go into debt to get an education to be educated people? Is there a better way to do it? Do we want more educated people? Period. Like, is it, do we value it as much as we value a military hammer that we're paying $500 for to <laughs> Boeing, yeah. right? Like, yeah. like, like, you know, the, the, the oft mentioned Pentagon budget, which never seems to be a topic of a podcast, never seems to be the topic of a thing. No, yeah, we've, we've done it. We've done it on Lost Debate. You know, let me just say this for people listening, everything I ever say, Ravi's going to say Lost Debate did an episode on it. If I said right now, that I wanted to t- do a show on goldfish who roller skate, Ravi would be like... <laughs> it's true, though. You got to think about how many podcasts I do a week. So I do two Lost Debate shows a week. That's six topics a week. And we've been doing it for two years. So I swear to God, name a topic. It's not even a joke. Like even sports. Like if you say pickleball, we've done a pickleball segment. Bisexual fish. Well, we've done bisexual <laughs> blank, but not necessarily fish. Uh, <laughs> like we've done segments on specific states. We've done segments on the Mormons. We've done segments on Broadway. I mean, you just talk about anything. It's, it's We've covered it. And it's just a lot of knowledge up there that I'm not sure exactly what I do with afterwards. So if you have any ideas, you let me know. But I hear what you're saying. Part of what I'm trying to think about here is... I think higher ed, like I don't want this conversation to be detached from the very real problems of higher ed. Soaring endowments, uh, bloated bureaucracy, really faulty admissions processes, which fill in the blank. I could say we've covered that on many places elsewhere, but I won't, but I kind of just did. (laughs) But there are so many problems with higher ed that I do not want to give them a free pass. And if we just keep juicing the system with free money, it's only going to make these problems in higher education worse. And so I just don't want money flooding the system without any accountability, especially since in contrast to, and I'm not sure exactly what the structure of what you're outlining is, but if if the plan is we just pay what the tuition is for people, then the tuition will just keep going up. 
because the higher ed institutions have no incentive whatsoever to keep costs under control. So that would be a problem. No, no, no. We don't pay tuition. We don't pay tuition. We have a per pupil in the K-12 system. We have a per pupil system of how we pay for each student. We don't charge tuition to a person going to a public school. So, I mean, you know, California, once upon a time, all of the junior colleges were free. It was like 13th grade and 14th grade. And that's why you have so many people with AA degrees walking around here. It's because they got an AA degree that got them into the workforce. Now, to your point about your mom, a lot of those AA degrees were directed at you being able to get out and do something, right? Like become a nurse or become a, you know, a CNA or some version of a a two-year college worker. My dad was one of those. Actually went through and got a tech degree and got jobs with IBM, Olivetti, and was off to the races, right? So anyways, what I'll say about this, for me, the essential questions have changed not is it fair, how much should it cost, how much money should we give to it, or any of those things. Or, you know, are colleges worth it or are they going to be incentivized? My questions are around why should it cost anything to get an education that uh, prepares you to be an educated person in society, for one. Education should be about the cheapest thing to deliver. Why do colleges have the business model you just mentioned? Why is that the model of college? Why are they driven by, first of all, like, let me just ask you a very basic question. In my state, the state of Minnesota, the state that has a pretty robust and good state college system, why is it like many states where if you're from another state, you have priority admission access? They want the out-of-state students more than anybody. So they wait list local students. Why do they do that? Because they can get more tuition out of people from other states, right? Yeah. Like, like, why is that the business model? Yeah. Why is why is there a business model, right? <laughs> well, because it's just it's it's free money for them. Because if the state says, "Hey, you've got to you got to keep it at this amount," like New York is like that too. So in New York, mm-hmm. in-state tuition is eight thousand three hundred seventy-nine dollars. Out-of-state is eighteen thousand two hundred eighty-nine dollars. If there's no mandate that you, and I don't know what the rules are in New York, but if there's no mandate that you have to take a certain amount of in-state versus out-of-state, all that other out-of-state people is free money for your university. And often there's a system, like SUNY. Last time I checked, was sixty-four separate campuses, mm, and. Damn. Each campus, I think, gets to keep probably the either all or some amount of that money that comes in from out-of-state students. So that's huge if that's true, right? So that's that's a huge incentive. I, I agree with you on that. All right. Well, shall we move on from this, Chris? Anything else you want to say on this? No. I mean, I think this is the part where we should like cue the sexy music like bong chicka bong da bong because we are going to talk about sex in this podcast. Maybe not in the way that people would think or would want us to, but that is the next topic. And it is related to education because this is an education podcast. We're not trying to be salacious, folks. We're trying to actually have a conversation about something that's important. We talk about sex education in schools. So often it is talked about in terms of, not in terms of what young people need to learn, that helps them become sexually healthy adults and make good decisions in life. We talk about it in terms of controversies and what we don't want the schools to, to teach about and what we don't want them responsible for. And, and it gets into this really kind of regressive, not super healthy debate about parents should be doing it more and whatnot and whatever. This is uh, one of the articles that we read this week. It's called, Is It Any Surprise Young People Are Turning to TikTok? to learn about sex. It's a Cosmo UK article from January, January 3rd. And in this, there's this stat, 42% of social media users believe that TikTok is the most accessible way to get information about sexual health. And 43% of them say that they've learned more 
from about sexual health from TikTok than they did at school. And that number goes up to 55% when you talk about 16 to 24-year-olds. I don't think I don't have any problem with new media being the way that we learn things or teach things. I'm all for it, right? But I'm also wondering about there has been, I think, a long, hard battle to make sex sex education a normal and therapeutic part of regular education period. Like, like could you imagine having an argument about PE? for instance, like, you know, physical education, right? If that suddenly became controversial, we'd be like, why? Like, this is the main artery of education. Education, sex ed has been uh, part of education at least since 1940, when it was classified as an urgent issue. And, and think about how many years that is. It was considered to be a public health need. And I think part of that might be we had so many people coming from different countries and immigrating that there was looking that we were looking for ways to make sure all Americans came through a, a common artery and had a common understanding about life because there were so many people from so many different places that we just needed to mediate it a little bit. What do you think about this one? If somebody ran schools, you dealt with your your issues around controversies about books and about other things and topics, and there's like feels like a new puritanism like starting up what do you think about undoing some of the progress we've made since the 60s to 50s or whatnot around things like sex ed and making it a taboo off topic so first of all i want to shout out educators out there this is really hard to do in this politicized climate it's really hard important work and i could only imagine it was really hard back then to even broach these subjects with or without like full communication with parents. So when we did sex ed, we sent letters home, we got parents to sign off. And then the, if parents wanted to pull their kids from the program, they would go to a separate room. And then we talked to the kids who opted in because we we're in the South and we wanted to be careful, right? We wanted to be mm -hmm. careful mm -hmm. about our legitimacy and prevent any backlash. Interestingly, as I've talked about on this podcast, I wound up teaching a book uh, City of Thieves in the seventh grade that had characters engaging in adolescent sexual activity. And that was weaponized by a school board member who came after us. And I think that gets at, you know, my underlying philosophy on this kind of stuff, which is, and there's this great piece in the, from the Mayo Clinic that we'll link to in the show notes. Uh, it's by this doctor, Dr. Asma Chata, who's a pediatrician. And she talks about how essentially kids will be looking at this stuff, uh, whether it's in pornography or elsewhere, earlier than you think. And she quotes data saying that 60% of 11 to 13 year olds are exposed to adult content by accident, 93% of males and 64% of females under 18 have purposely accessed pornography. Uh, and this all correlates with the use of the smartphone. And so there is a, and this gets to what we talked about with Andrew Tate last week. There, If there is a vacuum, it will be filled by things that you aren't being purposeful about. So let's be purposeful about it. But the politics make this really hard. So right now we have 29 states and DC, which mandate sex education in schools. 38 states mandate HIV education in schools. 19 states require information on contraception. 30 states require abstinence to be stressed. 13 states require information on consent. Only 13 states, Jesus. Nine states include affirming sexual orientation or discussive sexual health for LGBTQ youth. Six states explicitly require instruction that discriminates against LGBTQ people. And the states that, uh, according to this source, whatever it was, that dis discriminate in their eyes is Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, Oklahoma, and Texas. So we have just very different practices across the country when it comes to mm -hmm. sex education. Mm -hmm. 
And the, the sense that we're doing abstinence-only education in certain states to me is very alarming because all the data I've seen showed, it seems to suggest that that kind of stuff ain't working. So so here's, uh, maybe this is a hot take. So I mentioned in 1940, this started to be seen as a public health issue and it wasn't, it was just normal. It kind of wasn't the thing that it is today. 1953, there was like family life education introduced and it was part of that, you know, like teaching kids about families and, you know, how to have good families and the importance of strong families. In 1955, you had the sex education series in schools. Um, year by year, if you kind of go through throughout, there was a progression. We became, we we're progressing. You get to 1996 is when you have funding for abstinence only start becoming a thing. It became kind of like the Clinton years. You know, America was having a very weird national sexual conversation. Do you remember when he fired, he fired the attorney general, Jocelyn Elders. Do you remember why he fired her? Do you remember this story? It was over masturbation. Yeah. She basically encouraged masturbation and he fired her. Yeah. I mean, this is the point. This is, you know, the blowjob president and, you know, a, a secretary of education who talked about masturbation and then the Newt Gingrich, you know, kind of contract against America included all of this revival of like the Ralph Reed religious rights stuff or whatnot. It just became very weird. It was a weird right. time. And this may have been a casualty because it was 96 when the abstinence only, which is the safest possible sexual education because basically it makes everybody on the right feel good to say, just say, just don't do it. Just say no to right. drugs. Just say no to sex. Just don't do it. And that kind of is... I get the political part of that. That's actually not an educational way to think about life or to think about how, what you deliver in schools. It's kind of a, a pain. But I think right now, the thing that is going to upgrade all of this the most is, okay, let me just give you a very clear example. And I don't mean to be salacious. So listeners just understand I'm meaning this in an educational context. You used to have teachers in high school who do things like put a condom on a banana to show you how it works or put a condom on a cucumber to show you how it works. And and that was a little bit uncomfortable for some people and those types of things were uncomfortable. And then they started using actual sex toys in some cases and in some places and that became a thing school board members had to contend with of like how graphic could the representations be and whatnot. First of all, I just want to say nobody ever like gave us a hard time about cutting frogs open, which is like, you know, like just a gross ass thing. Uh, I'll take that over the condom on the banana. My dad did the condom on the banana thing. It was really awkward. Right after the Magic Johnson stuff. <laughs> well, interesting. That feels very awkward. Um, but then when you get to the part where you are describing, because you just mentioned in something that you said about LGBTQ parts of the sexual ed curriculum, that that was newer, adding that to uh, the norm. As that was normed in sex education, and you have to not just talk about a condom on a banana, but now you have to talk about descriptions of sex. That is a point at which you start having problems with a certain part of the American population, right? Like they were a little unnerved about heterosexual sex being described, but they felt like it was good for their kids because they wanted their kids at some point to be sexually healthy. But when you start describing other forms of sex that they are politically against and religiously against, now you have a problem in sex ed. And I think that's where we are now. I really believe that that's what started the new round of Puritanism yeah. and things like sex ed. And I think it's going to ruin it. Well, there's a trend, and, and I would say we've covered this somewhere, but we could fill in the blanks there again too, <laughs> very recently. But there's a trend right now in this country of actually people in general having sex less, especially our young people. So there's this 2021 youth risk behavior survey that the CDC put out. So the percent of high school students who have ever had sex, 2011, 47%, 2021, 30%. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, percent mm-hmm. of high school students who are currently sexually active, 2011, 34 percent. 2021, 21 percent. Percent mm-hmm. of high school students who used a condom during the last se- sexual intercourse, 2011, 60 percent. 2021, 52 percent. So across the board, less sex happening, less safe sex happening. That could have, you know, the safe sex stuff doesn't totally surprise me given the fact that HIV and AIDS just doesn't land the way it does today than when I was a kid, mm-hmm. when it was like a terrifying prospect. My mom is actually a nurse on uh, one of the New York City's first HIV AIDS wards. And I don't even want to go into the details there, but it was really, really tragic stuff and really mm-hmm. sad mm-hmm. and scary, like scared the shit out of all of us as kids. And even though back then we were really sexually active really early we were really careful about engaging in safe sex back then. And so you got kids just like staying home on the internet, engaging in less sex, probably consuming way more pornography. You think about like what it was like back in the day. Like, yes, a lot of us, like our rite of passage was like, you could get your hands on adult material. It was different. It was like a VHS cassette tape or a magazine. (laughs) Um, And here it's like gazillions of hours at anybody's fingertips without, which what appears to be way more uh, aggressive behavior online. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's troubling too. And once again, that's where people are learning what sex is. So you've got to have these conversations, whether you're a parent or a school, like you got to get in the middle of this and talk about it. Yeah. Well, number one, I'll just say like with anything, people are reporting that they're having less sex. Uh, I don't know that I a hundred percent am bought in on the self-reported kind of research behind it. I get it. They're reporting that. There's also like different segments of the population. And I wonder who who is doing what, because not everybody is like, you know, in the same in the same group there. But I do know that the need for good, smart information on sexual health, like anything else in life, is not something that I think should be off limit to the schools. The schools, you know, we have so many people talking about we should get back to the basics. We should just teach math, reading, writing, you know, or whatever. And that has never one been true. Like anybody who went to, to high school and took home ec, for instance, uh, which was one of my favorite classes because you got to eat in the class. Uh, you got to cook and eat in the class. Took a typing class, took social, you know, other classes, uh, phi ed. There are a lot of things that we teach in schools to make sure that, that it's a well-rounded education that people come out of 12 years, 13 years of being in a public school system with a well-rounded education. Yes, it's it's nice. I get it. Oh, we should just teach the basics, you know, just math and reading, the, the three R's, the three R's. That has never been. That's like in America that never been. We've always taught kids multiple ways to be healthy. And maybe what you just said is it goes back to our show last week. Maybe the thing to do is not, is to teach kid the meta. What's behind all these numbers. You just talked about these studies. Why not teach that? This is what the study is saying. And this is what young people are doing more of. And this is the way that pornography works online. And you're being targeted by the algorithm. Maybe get more at meta about teaching sex ed, but don't stop teaching it because you don't. Yeah. One stat, like, yeah, like there, there could be issues with self-reported data, but at least one stat just doesn't tell us everything, but US teen birth rate uh, has been declining since 1991 pretty dramatically. And so- like if students are engaging in less unprotected sex and the teenage birth rate is going down, 
that seems to point in the direction that maybe there really is something behind this data. I mean, the, t the teen birth rate has been going down for decades. It's not because people have been having less sex. It's because the messages around uh, safe sex actually have been working. That's actually like something people miss when they talk about the blackout of birth. It's a totally different topic, but they talk about the blackout of wedlock birth rate. That used to be very much a teen phenomenon, and they don't talk about the fact that that has dramatically dropped in the years that we have been preaching to young people to have safe sex like going way back to the early 90s. It's like 30 years of safe sex messaging. Yeah, I think this could be an interesting project for Todd Rose, you know, the guy who does the, he tries to get beyond uh, polling bias by getting to like privately held views. And I don't want to describe his methodology here, but he has this unique way to trick people into sharing their views. <laughs> and like, uh, I think if we did that with young people, that could be interesting. Like, and so if you're listening, like people in Todd's orbit, that could be fascinating. That's, that's over at Populous where they do those studies. They've done parent stuff. They've done general population stuff. It'd be interesting if we did our teenagers. Yeah. Well, here's a few things about sex that I think are a little off, off kilter with some of these things. And you and I described it before. Porn consumption is not down necessarily. I'd imagine it's up, I would guess. Yeah. It's it's way up. And if you look at, like, for instance, what red states and blue states are searching for when it comes to porn, red states are searching for trans porn, uh, which is really interesting. And, you know, it came up in a previous show that you and I had that when you have a Republican convention or CPAC, that grinder participation goes up greatly. So what I think is you have a lot to go, you have a lot to dig in on when you talk about what people say and what they actually do and what's driving their fears and their alarm about these issues and what we should be teaching. We should be teaching in schools are things that are science tested and, and proven. You know, schools should be honest brokers of information. And I think part of that might be to dig in on some of the things I just said. That's like, those are societal kind of backstories. What is it? about red states that makes them search for trans porn so much, even as they're passing laws against trans people. What it, what type of uh, sexual retardation do we have going on in, in, you know, in the American population right now that causes such things? Like, how do you have a whole party that once they have a convention, grinder participation goes up in the most gay-hating groups of people ever, supposedly? Anyways, I just thought I'd throw that stuff in on the end because it is part of, you got to do spice up the conversation a little bit. I mean, you know, yeah. listen. Well, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, well, a couple of key pieces of data here. Uh, there was a, a study published January 2021 in the Journal of Adolescent Health, and this is three decades of research. It's a 30-year study that found that comprehensive sex education can prevent child sex abuse and intimate partner violence, increase mm -hmm. appreciation mm -hmm. for sexual diversity, and improve environments for LGBTQ students, among other benefits. So this is real. It has real-life consequences. I think people often forget that sex education isn't just about consensual sex. It has to do with how do you avoid predators. Mm, that's a and good if, point. For God's sakes, if there's one thing that should be able to bring us together, it should be teaching kids to mm -hmm. avoid predators and know what consent is. And that that study from the that that write up from the the Mayo Clinic that I mentioned earlier from the pediatrician talks about how she wants us teaching about consent early. She says age five. Now if that sounds jarring to you it shouldn't because kids are preyed upon at really early ages and they need to know what consent is. And unfortunately, sometimes the people who are preying, on, preying upon them are people close to them.
right? Like, obviously, if you're a five-year-old and something bad happens to you, chances are it's somebody who's close to your family or within your family because there's somebody, like, you're not going to be left alone, by and large, with just random strangers. And so you should know what consent is from other uh, authority figures in your life and know that there's somebody you could go to if somebody violates that consent. And that's where things get really tricky about parents buying into that. For me, if I'm running a school system, that is not something that we need parents' permission to teach kids. Mm-hmm. I don't want mm-hmm. parents opting their kids out of that. That should be required. Everybody. There shouldn't be any debate about that. That is an obvious thing that every kid should know about. And is that where you get into trouble when you start mandating things that parents can't opt out of? Even if they wouldn't opt out of it, the idea that they can't, doesn't that become kind of an issue? I know, but I just I just want to know what that... I want to sit down with that parent who's like, yeah, I don't want my kid knowing what consent is, what kind of monster that person is, or just totally misunderstood. And mm-hmm. so to me... That's not negotiable to me. Like that needs mm-hmm. to be known. Just like you can't, you, you can't, I think in most places not have kids, you know, learn to read, right? Like even if you're homeschooling, I think you have to go through some kind of standards to do it. I could be wrong about that in some states. Like this should be something that all kids know about. Well, I think we covered part of it on a previous show. I think I'll open up just a little bit of the conversation here because it's something we should come back to. There is a national discussion right now about teachers and educators being groomers. And specifically, that is something that is targeted at educators who are part of the LGBTQ community. Specifically, the problem with that is that it is partially true that there is a large-scale sexual abuse problem in, in American public schools, and states know about it. Congress knows about it. Experts know about it. One in 10 public school students will experience school employee sexual misconduct in their lifetime. One in 10. That's one in 10 will experience a sexual misconduct by a staff member. That is mostly heterosexual folks. So the idea that it's being weaponized as a, as a gay and lesbian problem, bisexual and trans problem is really weird because it's actually uh, largely a heterosexual problem and largely is becoming more and more women and and male students, whatever. It's not to open up a Pandora's box, but if you think it's too late to talk to your, your kids about good touch, bad touch, and teach them about consent and boundaries, the people that are most likely in their life to, to uh, abuse them are people who have a trusting relationship with them. That's family members, close family members, immediate family members, extended family members, their church family and schools, as it turns out. And uh, the reason I was being very delicate about this is we have to have a conversation about it because we've tried to pass laws in states. For instance, Rhode Island tried to pass a law that said that it would be illegal for teachers to have sex with students. And that law was beaten down by the teachers unions (laughs) because they said, why target teachers when, you know, why not firefighters? Why not accountants? That's literally what the union-funded, educator-positive legislators said when a bill came before them that outlawed sex between a student and, and a teacher. Why teachers? Why are you targeting teachers? Why no one else? Well, firefighters aren't with kids all day long. They're not building, like, trusting relationships with kids. So to your <laughs> point, Ravi, like, like, you know, to your point of teaching kids early, as early as Was five. that Connecticut or Rhode Island? I thought I remembered that being Connecticut for some reason. It happened in more than one place. That's why you might be, like, this one I'm talking about specifically, the legislators, I remember the conversation, 
the thing. But if people really want to learn more about this, look up, look up an article in USA Today about this. And educators are often allowed to resign from their positions rather than being arrested. And they end up teaching in other states. It has happened where you have had gross situations in Louisiana and Portland and other places, long-term teachers having these issues. So, yeah. So I want people to know that like it's five years old might sound early to teach your kids about you know boundaries and about the fact that they need to know the difference between good touch and bad touch, but it's not. Anyways, thank you for indulging me on this discussion because I know when I brought it up, you know, uh, uh, I was like, you know, this isn't what we normally talk about, but it's important and it's going to become more of an issue. But we do, from our email grab bag, I want to like give a, a shout out to the fact that you can communicate with us and talk to us and give us feedback. I got lots of really good feedback last week from a few of our listeners that I'm going to take note of and I'm you know, going to make some follow-ups on what they said. But if you want to leave us a message, you can leave us a voicemail at 321-213-9171. If you want to send us an email, you can send it to citizenstewartshow at ostdebate.com and that will get to us. We will read it and we will take it in. Uh, and if you have any kind of feedback on the topics that we talked about today or ideas for new topics, please send them to us. We did get an email. Ravi, I think you want to respond to an email that we got. And it was addressed to you specifically. So I want to hear this. Yeah. Shout out to our listeners in Ohio. So this was somebody uh, who listened to the interview that we did on the Lost Debate podcast with Rick Hess, but we also talked about the Rick Hess and Checker Finn piece uh, that was all about the so-called like end of education reform. And the way that they framed that piece was around this A Nation at Risk report that came out in 1983 that basically talked about how we were like in a bit of a uh, educational um, morass at the time and that the country was in decline and all that. And this listener sent us a report from somewhere called the Sandia Report. We'll link to this in the show notes, but essentially it talks about how there's this weird statistical anomaly. I'd never heard of this before, which is called the Simpsons Paradox, which occurs when trends that appear in aggregated data reverse when you separate the data out into subgroups. And essentially what they found is that test scores actually improved for all groups, but there were certain new groups added to the data that brought it down at that point. If you want to really dig in, go to look at it. So essentially what they're saying was that the country wasn't in the crisis that the people who wrote The Nation at Risk were framing. So you could take a look at that. It's more of a historical point than anything else, but I also like learned a new term, Simpsons paradox. Very, very fascinating. So, and wait, just to be clear on the point, the main point is the thing that prompted nation at risk as a urgent problem wasn't really an urgent problem. That's what this particular statistical argument is making. I have to go back and read a nation at risk to see how mm -hmm. much they hung their hat mm -hmm. on test scores versus anything else. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I didn't know if they looked at, I haven't read it in a while. Like if they looked at college attendance rates or this or that, or, you know, I, I have no idea what they, what they looked at. I do know that this is a persuasive case that the test, like any reliance on test score data might not have been as airtight as it seemed. Well, very interesting. I, uh, you know, first of all, thank you to any of the listeners for any of the Lost Debate shows who write to us. So thank you to John for sending this to us. And I would also like to say thank you to the people who in person gave me really good feedback last week. That was great. From you guys, for others, again, I'm going to give it to you one more time. Send us an email at citizenstuartshow at lostdebate.com or leave us a voicemail message at 321 213 
9171. As always, we appreciate you as listeners. Please share the show with others. If you really enjoy the, the show, write a note, give us a review, a good review, and tell others why they should listen to the Citizen Stewart Show. We love you guys as always. We'll see you next week. Have a good one.